Welcome to episode 6 of SeedPod, coming to you from the traditional and unceded lands of the Katsi First Nation and Kwantlen First Nation. We're grateful and honoured to share the beauty and abundance of these lands. SeedPod is intended to introduce you to the people and communities of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, so that your connection to this place grows with each episode. The stronger our connections, the stronger our community. In the second half of this episode, you'll hear part four of the Hundred Year War on Alouette Salmon, a seven-part series based on the recollections of longtime Maple Ridge resident Jeff Clayton. He shares something in common with our first guest. Both are currently living away, but are still deeply connected to Ridge Meadows. We will start with the conversation I had in June 2021 with Kim Wright, who has transported her love for community development that she developed here in Maple Ridge to her new home in St. Damien, Quebec a small town about 90 minutes from Montreal. Kim grew up in the USA and moved to Canada at around the age of 19, and she moved around a lot in her life and never grew roots until she lived in Maple Ridge, especially after the day she walked into the farmer's market and met some people there. Uh, She says from then her her life changed. She'd never felt a part of anything until she became uh, involved with the Seed Centre in the community. And that's when she found her passions in community development and engagement and local healthy food systems. So she now loves to organize events and plan community projects. And she likes to collaborate and see ideas come to life. She has a background now in sustainable community development and event planning. And she believes that taking actions, even small ones, moves even the biggest mountains. And when people get together and work toward a vision, anything is possible. I personally credit Kim, along with uh, Shannon Alki and Christian Iverson, who has sadly passed away, as the first volunteers at the Seed Center during my time as manager to form the core of the Seed community. She and the other two created the critical mass that launched the sense of community that has endured since, and indeed has become a core mission of our society. Kim served for a time as a Seed Center director around 2011 to about 2013, and she had a vision for a food co-op that would source food locally and spearheaded a group that looked into making this a reality. We're still looking for a food co-op champion to take her place. She moved to Quebec in around 2016 to her partner's home ground. Kim, you, you moved a great distance from Maple Ridge to rural uh, Quebec. You're now in a French-speaking Quebecois environment. How's the adjustment been? Uh, well, it's getting easier. I took some courses, so I, my French is actually at a level where I can have a conversation. In the beginning, it was very difficult. It, I felt very isolated. I went to school in the United States. So um, French wasn't something that we learned. Uh, it was Spanish. Maybe. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was hard. And I, I pushed on. I was working a lot of intensive manual labor jobs. So I didn't really have a mm-hmm. lot of time to practice. And I wasn't around people a lot. So yeah, it's been tough. Um, I went from oh, being okay. heavily involved in community to not being able to speak to many people at all. Not having a community around you that you can, yeah, communicate with. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. So uh, how do you find that now? Now that it's been about five years and I've taken some courses, some basic courses, it's getting easier. And when I can have a conversation with someone, it feels good to be able to connect. It's mm. still difficult uh, when I want to do something that's important for me, like starting my business here, my coaching business. It'll be something I do mostly online with people who are English in English speakers. Yet now that I'm trying to grow roots here, I really want to 
be a part of my community and I had some difficulty. I, I was I actually ended up being voted onto the committee, the St. Damien uh, Community Development Corporation. Okay, yeah. And as a as a citizen and I found it very difficult. I right. wanted that role, yet I was struggling to understand what was happening in the conversations and yeah. So as I a, pulled myself out. Yeah. As a Japanese speaker, I fully understand uh, what that's like to be completely immersed in a in a different language and the cultural mm. um, references that you don't necessarily get, even though you understand the words. Right, and the different each each town has different ways of speaking and mm. different grammars, and and in a social context, people don't speak the way I learned it when I went to school. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I asked my teachers there, "How do I figure this out? How do I learn it?" Well, you have to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this this choice uh, to make whether I throw myself into it or I just stay isolated and. Right. I keep going back and forth because yeah. it's it's hard. It's harder than anything I've had to do. It can be exhausting. Yes. Yeah. As yeah. as you know of any uh, person speaking in a or operating a different language than their mother tongue. Yeah. That's what it's like for each and you know immigrant what's, here. What's ironic is that um, at the end of my English degree, I I did a program for teaching English as a second language, and you have to learn a language for that so that you know you know what it's like how people learn language i did take a couple of semesters of of spanish spanish yeah but it wasn't until being immersed into another language and nobody speaking my language at all that i really understand what it was like for the immigrants what it's like for the immigrants that come in and don't yeah. have yeah the you english have to be there oh yeah so is there anything you miss from uh, from your time in Maple Ridge? Oh, yeah. Lately, especially now that the sun's out and this is the time for festivals and, and going to the farmer's market and talking to people. I just would, I didn't usually buy things there. I just went down there to talk to people <laughs> and buy <laughs> yeah. some things and hang out. And it's nice to, to be known it's somewhere. It's like a festival, and yeah. It is. It is. And... I miss doing being involved in projects and event planning, planning the events and fundraisers and things like that. Obviously, there's nobody's really planning them quite yet anywhere. So, but here, when I was True. starting to get involved in this town, I'm like, you guys should do events. You know, like it would be so great. You could get people to come out and get involved, and because it's you know, I guess maybe we'll get to this, but trying to get people on board with your your project or just getting people to come out and say like this is what I want my community to look like and you know people are just like oh it's fine the way it is <laughs> <laughs> right so what have you found to like about your new community uh, the best I see growth I mean it's a small town and I'm I'm very global minded because I've moved so much um, I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, connect with this town and this town, could, they could all connect and they could come together and collaborate on these things. And, but the, the towns, there's a lot of people that um, are working towards making things more livable. It's, it's a small town with a highway running through it, kind of like Maple Ridge. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but Maple Ridge is, is big. With, it has a, a 
80,000 people where this town has 2,200 people. So, but it's very similar in how movements start. Okay. And I see this community development organization had started up years ago and then it, it kind of, it didn't have the momentum at the time for some reason. I can't remember what they told me, but I showed up at their annual general meeting right before COVID happened. And I could understand some of what the president was saying. And I remember him saying that we want to put St. Damien on the map. Mm. And my heart just like skipped a beat. I'm like, I want to help you. (laughs) (laughs) But that energy that when the people around are going, yeah, you know, like, let's do this. There are people that want to see this happen. And on the Facebook page, I keep seeing these new things pop up. Some of the same group of people are like, you know, let's try this. Let's try this. They're not just giving up. So I like that. And there's also some community gardens going in. Uh, There was a shout out last year for people to come and volunteer. So we went down and volunteered to help plant some stuff and right in the middle of town. So that's really cool. Hmm. Have you noticed any cultural nuances in the way that community uh, works together in St. Denis? In St. Damien? No, Damien, sorry. The thing about Quebec I've noticed is that there is a real sense that people people crave community. Mm-hmm. P- people love get to getting together. Uh, yeah. I've gone to some live events in one of the towns beside us and the people that came to the events they're just like multi-generational you know the the older people are are wearing real hip clothes you know with like just, <laughs> like people just are cool they they don't care they're just they're not reserved you know so right. when i think about events here i get excited because i know people just love to come together and it doesn't really matter for what they just love to come together so they have the potential to be a little bit more colorful then in the approach to, yes. to community? Yeah, they're yeah. colorful. They're, and I know Montreal has a real vibrant, uh, there's like Vancouver, there's different sections. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep. I've met a few people down there and they're very forward thinking. How far away are you from uh, Montreal? An hour and a half northwest. So okay. it's different. In the small town, people are different think differently than they do in the big city. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, sure. the smaller towns are mostly people over 55. They're, okay. they're older. The, the families don't tend to stick around much unless they own a business here because right. there's not a whole lot of, or const- like probably a construction or landscaping or some type of business like that. Something to do with snow or snow removal, roofs, you know, yeah, service yeah. type businesses. But as far as community, there is a farmer's market that is only a couple of years old and it's starting okay. to gain some mo- momentum. It kind of reminds me of the early days of the farmer's market in Maple Ridge. Okay. But then the food systems here are very different because there's a couple of farms, but the season is really su- super short. Yeah, I guess so. So if you wanted to find a lot of local food at the farmer's market you're not going to okay is it more preserved things and yeah they've got there's cut flowers um some arts and crafts there's 
a farm that goes there, a health food store. There's a lot of syrups. Okay, yeah. From, there's syrups from the different trees. Like even the pine trees and the spruce oh, really? trees. And yeah. Okay, that's interesting. One that, what do you do with pine syrup? I don't know. I just bought a bunch of little um, decorative <laughs> jugs. <laughs> to try them. The sampler it, it, jars. Yeah, the sampler jars. <laughs> oh, interesting. But I like I like that it's it's starting. And I, I like that there's a group that's working towards making St. Damien more vibrant. Hmm. I think that's really cool. That is very cool, yeah. So uh, you are launching a new business. You're going to be a, a coach for change makers. What uh, insights have the training that you've taken so far uh, given you? I know this is a tough question. Yeah, so much. I've really been always passionate about personal development since I can remember, since I was in my 20s. And I've read so many books. <laughs> and I've always believed that everyone has this potential to do great things. But it always felt really cliche for me to say that out mm -hmm. loud to people. I, I just want to say, you can do so much. But then there's my, my, my little voice in my head saying, well, maybe it's not true. You know, and oh, yeah. this training has shown me that that little voice that everyone has, the Buddhists call it monkey mind. Yeah. Some people call it their narrative. Some people call it their stories, you know, this structure of, of knowing that we have that once we see it mm -hmm. and realize that this is not reality, this is not the truth, this is something that is inherent something that we use to keep us safe right something that stops that's what you know our stopping points is monkey mind is like yeah you're getting in over your head or you don't have enough information you don't have what it takes you know somebody's already thought of it or if they haven't thought of it then it's it's not useful or it's not possible but once we see that we don't have to believe that we can say thank you for sharing there's <laughs> this important thing that I really want to do in the world. And as long as we know that that, I mean, it's always going to be there. It's not like, you know, I got to get rid of this voice because it's always going yeah. to be there. It's, you know, it's there. It's what am I going to do about it? <laughs> right. So now I don't just think that everybody has this potential. I know it. Okay. I know that every single person that I meet has the potential to do something great. Right. And, and I can say that with, complete confidence. Yeah. So now I see people differently. Mm. I don't have these doubts because the doubts that I saw in another person are likely the doubts that I have for myself. Right. So we walk around with these perspectives, you know, this is the way the world is, but this is our version of what we think the world is. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, it matches some of the insights I've uh, received from working with youth who, you know, quite often think that nobody likes them. And it's, you know, so far from the truth, but it's, it's the reality for that youth at the time and to, to let them see that, no, actually they're respected, wonderful people. And uh, you know, we love to have them around. It really changes um, how you see each youth as well. So yeah, I can imagine that training would be fantastic uh, when you start to mm -hmm. say, okay, how do we mobilize what's in this person? Right. So have you had a chance to work with many people yet, or are you just sort of in the in the beginning stages? I'm in the beginning stages. Um, I've been doing work with a mentor and my cohort, 
the the students in my mm -hmm. training program um, were all practicing with each other and along with men, our mentors. And I'm cleared to coach. <laughs> so well, I'm yeah. going to start putting myself out there and I'm working on a landing page right now. I'm also working on a, a book study that I'll be hosting in September. It's um, a six-week book study on the book called The Energy of Money that was written by Maria Nemeth. She's the okay. founder of the program, the, the school ACE um, Academy for Coaching Excellence. And The Energy of Money book okay. and her Mastering Life's Energies is what this school was actually built from her all her years of research on those books. So I will be hosting a Energy of Money okay. book study for six weeks, and I can let you know more information about that in the future. Like it, okay. it's changed my life, and oh, now um, I'm on a hero's journey that I'm really excited to. Well, not start because I've already started, but take yeah. off to launch <laughs> wonderful it's it's great to uh to have something to look forward to so what um what impact do you hope to have as a coach the impact that i want to have as a coach is to see more more people bringing their ideas into the world um i want to support people who are change makers and leaders in their communities to mm -hmm. to see what their stopping points are and to work towards the vision that they have with clarity, focus, ease, and grace. And I want to help people who who want to be change makers or you know they have ideas that they want to put into the world, whether mm -hmm. they are um, a part of a community or if they're feeling isolated and they want to be a part of a community. Right to to make the connections that they need to make and just to see the vision that they would like to see and to see what's important to them and to put their focus and their energy towards those things more more easily right we we live in times of massive global change with climate change with um just the the pandemic with a lot of changes in international regimes sort of things happening on the, the, the big, bigger world stage. So yeah, there's a lot of change that I see in young people and in older people as well. So uh, having someone to, to guide them in the process and to, to not lose hope would be really um, fantastic. Yeah. And you see yourself uh, in that role. So that's great. Oh, yes. Yeah. Before we sign off, do you have anything you'd like to say to your uh, friends in um in Maple Ridge and Pit Meadows that, that you'd like to leave with them? I miss everyone. I really miss getting together and talking about things and brainstorming and just having coffee and getting doing events, seeing them at events. I miss that. I miss the community. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say hi to everyone and I miss you. Yeah, it's hard when you're an ex, sort of an expat in your own country. Yeah. But it has been a real pleasure reconnecting with you and the the magics uh the magic of the internet is that we do get to talk to you on our wednesday community discussions from time to time when, when you're not uh, otherwise occupied so it's uh, it's great to uh, keep up the conversation and you know that uh, you've never really left the community and some of your legacy is still here we still actually have a fund at the seed center 
that you helped raise the money for and that we're oh, nice. keeping in reserve for someone that wants to become the next champion of the food co-op. If anyone steps up interested in a food co-op in Maple Ridge, I am available if they want to contact me. Oh, excellent. That would be great. Okay. Well, it's been a real pleasure to connect with you this uh, evening for you, I guess. It's afternoon for us here. And uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you when you've had a chance to, to get uh, one or two coaching sessions or experiences under your belt. And we'll, uh, we'll touch base with you again on that. How's that sound? Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. It's been really nice talking to you too. Welcome to the fourth part of the Hundred Year War on Alouette Salmon. Jack, can you give us a summary of the last session? Well, Christian, Jeff Clayton's long battle with BC Hydro for water over Alouette Dam to sustain salmon reminds me of that biblical tale of David versus Goliath, a lone, small, but determined individual with a righteous cause pitted against a powerful giant refusing to yield ground. This is how our story begins in the 1960s. In time, other members of the local community, with concerns of their own, add weight to the demand. Let's see who they are in Session 4. New Recruits. The Battle for Water Heats Up. Yes, okay, so who are these new recruits? Well, one of them is Maple Ridge Councillor Bill Archibald who's been paying a lot of attention to the community's water issues. Archibald calls a town hall meeting to air concerns. Folks living on the river complain that low water levels mean kids can't swim in the river. There's concerns about dangerous E. coli levels. Local sports fishermen see declines in once abundant steelhead, and juvenile fish fry are dying in makeshift hot tubs residents on the river have constructed just to cool off in the hot summer. The DFO responds to this mounting pressure for water by volunteering to meet with BC Hydro, but it doesn't invite Clayton or the community to participate in a deal it makes with BC Hydro. The water flow agreement proves totally inadequate. Clayton calls it ridiculous. He's disgusted and frustrated thinks of walking away from the battle with BC Hydro, especially since the DFO is no help at all. But he can't forget the importance of the cause, so he keeps an eye on water levels in the river. On one occasion in 1970, standing at the base of the dam, Clayton notices something new that concerns him. The low-level outlet pipe in the dam, that releases water by controlled amounts from the reservoir, is plugged with woody debris. He decides to have a closer look and discovers a potential problem. 
So you stayed in touch with BC Hydro during all of this. Uh, you had contacts at Ruskin Dam. It's still around 1970, and they tell you about another problem with water flow from a water level control pipe in the dam. Yes. What is the purpose of this LLO pipe, and what was the problem? Yeah, well, we're moving ahead. Uh, 69, we were pushing. 70, there was this agreement reached. But then, uh, having reached an agreement, they looked to see if they could get water out of this low-level outlet uh, because, uh, to my amazement, they had not used it for um, so many years. It had been uh, choked up with uh, small woody debris and cedar uh, cedar hay and um, the grid in front of it, the trash rack plugged and as they tried to clean it out, they found that the uh, the pipe itself, the 36-inch corrugated uh, pipe was uh, unstable, rusted through. So they were going to have to do a, a, a welly. You know, at first uh, I heard from Larch, Archie Lois that they didn't know what they were going to do. And then um, I heard that they had uh, drawn down the reservoir, uh, been able to get in there, put a diver in there to have a look around. And then they pulled out that old rotten section of pipe, probably a couple of hundred meters or more and replaced it with a 32-inch smooth line pipe and jammed it into the into the section that was left just under the dam and then put a, a new valve on the head end. Um, and that's what exists there today is uh, they still got a, you know, a, a 1926 um, rusted section of the pipe under that dam. Uh, so it's, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's of the best engineering standards that they left it like that. That repair job that they did on the leaking LLO pipe be of uh, any real concern to residents below the dam today? Well, in 2005, I was standing below the dam very close to where that flow comes out and makes the headwaters for the Alouette River. And I found seepage coming up uh, from the ground, uh, you know, like a little spring. I, I I was quite surprised. And obviously, uh, when you have that um, water behind a dam and you see a spring coming up at the lower section, you, um, you know, I, I was, although I was retired by then, I felt I had a responsibility. I notified BC Hydro, uh, I said there might be some piping. In other words, water that's seeping along the outer periphery of this low-level outlet pipe because of the area where it's coming up. And uh, they, uh, they went down there and investigated and made a little kind of a little pond and they put a transducer um, that would transmit any changes in this flow. And to this day, uh, I think that's still operating um, to give them a warning if, if uh, this was to increase. As long as the water's running clear, it's probably a good sign that things are under control. But if it starts to get a little muddy, wow, um, look out. So... The head of BC Dam Safety, uh, Robert Schubach, Dr. Robert uh, Schubach, has got that on his list of seismic upgrades is to do something about that pipe, but they haven't said what. So there are some potential issues with the integrity of the dam due to piping or, or seepage. Beneath it, as late as 2005, what's BC Hydro doing for salmon between then in the 70s and 2005? Not much. Let's return to our conversation with Jeff. I asked him, why do you suppose BC Hydro has been so opposed to release the water salmon need for survival? 
Well, it goes right back to the Benjafield report in 2001 in that, you know, they, I, I think they pretty well figured that it, um, it was going to be extremely difficult. But if they set it to get fish above a dam, uh, at least the Coquitlam and the Alouette and the Wilsey up in the interior, uh, but if they said it, they would have uh, been seen as biased. So they got this firm uh, to say the same thing. Um, and then when we started to push for this, you know, they uh, they saw it as it's just not the Alouette, because the Alouette is what you call a low head dam. It's not too high. It's, it's um, about um, 11 to 15 meters that have to be overcome, which is, is peanut. But when we come to the fact that ARMS is pushing for this, they see this as the um, the leading edge of what could be a, a lot of other um, streams like the Coquitlam, um, yeah, some on Vancouver Island, some in the interior, um, that would all of a sudden say, me too. And that uh, I th- that was their biggest concern. So now you're thinking that BC Hydro really doesn't want to set a precedent that could pressure them to make the same concessions for water at other dams. That must have been very discouraging. Were you starting to feel your efforts were pointless at this stage? Hmm. Yes, uh, certain, certainly. Um, no, um, I, I think it, it became very, very clear that this was going to take a tremendous amount of public pressure that we were not we were not going to be able to rely on the DFO or the Ministry of Environment or or our political leaders to lead this. It was going to have to be a grassroots movement. It was going to have to be a group in Maple Ridge that came together and say, you know, we want a river back. You've had it long enough. You've made a, a tremendous amount of money on it. But now is the time to address this, um, the scars of, of a frontier era when people didn't know any better. And you don't have that excuse now. So that's the story so far, Christian. Now let's go forward to 1985. The DFO worked out a private water flow release agreement, but it doesn't meet anyone's expectations. Clayton concludes now, he cannot rely on the DFO, the Ministry of the Environment, or politicians to get one that is adequate for salmon. And the river water level still seems far lower than it should be, according to the agreement. So he decides to do his own flow measurements. Let's continue. Let's go forward to 1985. It's 14 years into the weak minimum flow agreement you had with, uh, you'd gotten from uh, BC Hydro and DFO's meeting. But you have a feeling that the water flow promised wasn't even happening. So you looked into flow records in those 14 years. What did you discover that shocked and frustrated you? Well, first, you know, I have to say it was August. It was a very hot August. And I noted under the 232nd Avenue bridge next to the Water Survey Canada gauging station that the river was desperately low, as low, if not lower than what it had been before that agreement. I went down, uh, took the temperature. It was over 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, then I took a transect, which means uh, you set up some measurements so you can uh, effectively compute the flows in the river. And I found that they were about um, eight cubic meters per second. And they should have been, uh, you know, um, 
far, far more than that. Um, so I, I was shocked and I went home and I thought, this isn't the agreement we reached. Um, there should have been a minimum of 25 cubic feet per second. So I was looking at one third of that agreement. And I got onto uh, Water Survey Canada's uh, site and had a look. And to my amazement, looking back in their flows records from the time that agreement was reached between uh, BC Hydro and DFO in 1971 to 1985, 15 years inclusive, only two of those years in those hot, low summer days had anybody monitored the river at the 232 bridge to see that BC Hydro was honoring that agreement. So that meant there was culpability from uh, DFO, who was party to that agreement, and BC Hydro, uh, the two signing authorities to that agreement. And, and there was a further culpability because, um, you know, DFO could have easily gone to Water Survey Canada and say, give us a link to this so we can check it. They wouldn't even have to have got out there on their feet. By that time, there was, uh, there was, you know, um, satellite link singles going out there. So uh, I was disgusted, annoyed, um, and frustrated. Nobody monitored the water flow agreement, and Clayton finds it wasn't being honored. It wouldn't seem so, and neither the DFO or BC Hydro were doing any monitoring. So I asked Jeff, what he did when he discovered that BCH hadn't kept the flow agreement of 1971. So, Jeff, what did you do uh, with the feelings that you had now and the discoveries that you had made? What did you do after that? Where did you take it? Well, um, in after the agreement in 1971, we all just walked away and discussed because we'd put a tremendous amount of effort into this and and DFO had sold us down down the river, um, as far as we were concerned. Oh, and, and yes, if there was ever a time when I ran out of hope, it was then. But then uh, an amazing thing happened. In 1979, the Aronio LeBlanc came through with, um, well, it was 1978, for when the DFO came through with their Salmon Enhancement Program. And, and this was to change the Fisheries Act. And there was a no net loss uh, principle involved here. Uh, you lose fish habitat somewhere. You've got to replace it somewhere else in the same watershed, those kind of things. And there was a, uh, a gang boss, um, a supervisor in corrections, local, Alouette River Correctional Center. Uh, he said, you know, there's some opportunities here. I've got work gangs that are looking for projects and we got a river that runs through right through our correctional property. I think we could start a hatchery here. And uh, he got he got press. Um, you know, people were fascinated by the concept that here, um, you know, we could gain two things. Um, uh, we could have inmates uh, doing work that they could see had value, uh, which is always, um, you know, a, a good thing. And he thought we could start to rebuild the runs in the river. So he, he, he had people that said, you don't understand uh, the, uh, uh, what it requires scientifically to run a hatchery, but he kept pursuing and, and he got it going. 
And so by 1985, though, in the summertime, his his trays, which he had uh, keeping um, juvenile salmon, young juvenile salmon in, uh, were uh, getting water out of the river, and that water was too hot and too low. His pumps were having problems even uh, drafting water out of the river to get it to his hatchery. So he, he phoned um, the supervisor uh, at State Falls, Ruskin's um, offices. By that time, it was a new chap by the name of Rick Williams and say and said, uh, you know, you're killing my babies. He said, you're, you're, the water coming down this river is hotter than hell and low. And, and so what Rick would do is he was a little shocked at first. And of course, he knew, uh, again, that the uh, operating orders didn't uh, allow him necessarily to release water, but he, he kind of looked it over and he, he had a technician by the name of, of Kenny Bell. And he, he'd sent him up there and said, there's a valve at the head end of this low level outlet pipe. Uh, Kenny, get up there and open it a turn and satisfy this, this uh, correctional officer. He's raving at me. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Kenny Bell went up there and of course he liked fish in the outdoors and uh, he, uh, he would open it uh, two turns. Yeah, maybe even three turns. Good Lord, I don't know. But anyway, he'd stop in at the hatchery on his way back and say, how's that? And and they got to be friends, Jim Jose and, and Kenny Bell. And it was an amazing relationship. From then on, we got a little water in the summertime, but uh, BC Hydro um, officially uh, didn't know about it. So uh, the low water, you know, got a hatchery going now and uh, the, the guy running it is complaining that he doesn't have enough water from the river. So um, local businessman Gordy Robson hears about the call for more water for a hatchery. What does Robson do to move the cause forward in 1993? Well, um, you know, he, he heard not only the call, you know, for the hatchery, but the call that the, the river desperately needed more water. So in 1993, he, um, he pulled together a, another town hall meeting. This time, I believe it was in council chambers. Again, um, you know, various people that had riparian rights living along the river um, came and um, I went and a, a few others. Uh, I think the game warden went. Uh, and uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we came together there. And we all spoke out as to our concerns. Again, some of it was um, the uh, sewage issues, recreational issues. After all, we didn't have swimming pools in those days. You know, the river was our our summer swimming pool. The the kids just loved it. And, uh, you know, it was um, that was even being affected uh, to the extent that they used to send a, a bulldo- a, a Maple Ridge Yards a bulldozer down there at the end of June and dig a hole in the river under the uh, 232 bridge for the kids to swim in. It was that low. They, they actually had to do that, you know, against all fishery regulations. But anyway, we, uh, we all raised these issues. And I spoke very, I guess, graphically about the concerns for the fish. And uh, then later on, a few months later, I, I got a phone call from a uh, a deputy warden in the Alouette River Correctional Center to say, um, you know, we have a hatchery here and uh, we've, we've worked very hard to produce fish, but we know that, that water is the big issue. And we heard all the concerns from the town hall meeting um, that Gordy relayed to us. And um, 
he he recommends you uh to come forward with some other people uh, he has given me their names too and let's have a meeting and see what we can do here and uh, consequently we did so um the i think arms uh came came was was one of the results of that uh, town hall meeting and uh can yep. you tell us, uh, give us some details about how it started and what your role was? All right. So, yes, uh, we met, interestingly enough, in a, in a staff room at the, at the prison. Tom was sitting at the head end of the table, um, Tom Cadu, who've identified as the deputy warden. And he said, uh, you know, Robson has given me your names and uh, we'd like to pull together a society, a, a formally registered society in Victoria and and see what we can do to improve the conditions of the Alouette River. And would you consider this? Then he, he produced, this was kind of an uh, amazing thing. He, he produced a certificate that showed that arms had been registered as a society. Uh, so we kind of, the, uh, was the horse uh, before the, uh, the cart or the cart before the horse situation here. Uh, we were, he, he, with a big grin, we were amazed that um, this footwork had been done already. And he suggested um, that a great acronym would be Alouette River Management Society, uh, which, of course, uh, the acronym is, and I love the concept of that because I, I felt going forward, you know, uh, having been in one organization that had disbanded before that we hadn't been you know, tough enough and arms had a great ring. But I said, as we went around the table for introductions, came to me, I said, look, I worked for Hydra for 25 years. I was a shop steward for 21 years. I'd been in five sets of negotiations, one that lasted for 15 months. And I know how tough Hydra can be. And I, I really think that we might have to do a BC Supreme Court challenge to get water from them. And, you know, if we're going to be kind of a kumbaya little group uh, here, I just won't stand as a director. So, and and I'm asking for the flow uh, portfolio too, because by that time we had decided that our first founding uh, president should be Tom Cadu. So I addressed him and and the, so the question was asked around the table, do you accept, you know, uh, Jeff's um, more or less ultimatum here? And uh, they all agreed unanimously um, because they realized that I had the background knowledge and experience, not only with the river and the first group and the reasons why it failed, but having worked for BC Hydro and having also negotiated uh, with BC Hydro. So I did get that. And um and I must say the reason really it worked for me so well, too, is that amazing person, uh, Tom Cadu, uh, just, you know, pretty well gave me free reign um, because actually his position was in conflict because here he was an employee of uh, in the B.C. correction system. Um, and, and he was starting a, a, a very active, um, vibrant group who would sooner or later run him into a conflict of interest in his government-employed position there. Long answer. So that's how ARMS came to be. But the story's not over, I guess. What comes next, Jack? Well, we're moving along. In the next segment, part five of the 100 Years War on Alouette Salmon, 
We will see Jeff now with influential supporters behind him in a segment we will call Taking Off the Gloves. So that brings us to the conclusion of this episode. Seed Pod is brought to you by the Seed Center Society and its patrons. Don't forget that you too can become a patron that donates as little as $3 a month to support this window into the community. You can find our Patreon website at www.patreon.com slash seedpod. Seedpod is spelled C-E-E-D-P-O-D. I'd like to give a shout out to our first patron, Amy Wood. Yes, a seed pod host that puts her money where her mouth is. The Seed Center Society is a registered charity dedicated to community education on environment and development. Seed? Get it? Our mission is to connect people to community and share information so that all living beings can thrive. We operate a neighborhood house with lots of free programs and services, as well as community gardens. Why don't you join us for the Wednesday community discussions, which take place from 10 10 a.m. to noon on, you guessed it, Wednesday mornings at the Seed Center Neighborhood House on 223rd Street in Maple Ridge. You can also email us to get the Zoom link for the meeting, which we're now hosting both live and online. Well, that's it for me, your co-host Christian Cowley. So long, and stay connected to Seed Pod.